Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 186 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where we have lots of thoughts, and most of them are good, and people should listen to us. (laughs) I'm Karen Peterson. Why are you laughing? It's true. I love the opening introductions (laughs) of this podcast. Like, we're just like, we like things sometimes and a lot of the time we don't (laughs) but in this case we're very smart and wise and you should listen to me but you should also listen to my awesome co-host lauren humphreys brooks hi hi how are you i'm good i'm good trying to keep warm and it is currently like negative nine outside so that's fun that is a temperature that should not exist where humans live well, and it's it's like, oh, the high today is going to be six, <laughs> and the low is going to be zero, but it's going to feel more like negative 15. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gotta love that wind chill. <laughs> oh, God. Yes, the Northeast. And I really no don't winter. miss it. I don't miss it at all. <laughs> and yes, I paid my dues. I lived in Quebec. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> See, I always think of you as being like, oh no, you're like this warm weather person who, you know, has never seen snow, but I always forget that, like, you actually have. <laughs> I an have. I have. Cold weather. <laughs> I have shoveled far too many driveways. I will. That's why I live in California again. I got to a point where I was like, I'm never doing another winter. I refuse. Like, I don't mind visiting the snow, but I am not going to live in it anymore. I'm not doing it. <laughs> it's not I, I mean,. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm upstate right now, but this is this is one of the reasons why I moved to New York City. New York City tends to be a lot warmer, just <laughs> generally. Yeah. yeah. I gotta find it. There's a picture I have of myself. This is when I lived just outside of Montreal in this little town. And we had this huge snowstorm one day that dumped like four feet of snow in eight hours. I mean, it was crazy. And... um. And so the apartment that we lived in, there was this deck out from our back door and underneath it was storage, like where the owner, cause our apartment was built onto the back of this giant house and the owner of the house had built this storage for like his, you know, giant riding lawnmower and his snow plow and stuff like that. And so we had, but it was made out of this wood that we had to like, it, I guess it wasn't treated right or something. So we had to snow, like we had to like shovel the, um, the whole porch to keep it. So it didn't just weigh down too much. And, um, so I have this picture of me halfway through the day shoveling and it's up to my knees. <laughs> so this is legit. I have done this and it sucks. <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> anyway, films, movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, we are going to get rain today for what it's worth. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's exactly the same as it being negative nine degrees out. That's it's exactly the same thing. Exactly. Anyway, before we do talk about movies and stuff, though, and stop talking about weather, how are you just in general? Have you seen anything good lately you wanted to mention? I have seen some very good things lately that I that I would like to mention. I, I would like to talk about tra- the tragedy of Macbeth. So good. Um, yeah, like, I, I, my parents and I watched it last night, and I unfortunately missed it when it was at uh, the New York Film Festival, but what a film. That's That's one of those that just feels like... That as I was watching, I was like, "This is what Shakespeare adaptations are supposed to be." It's very sparse, very, um, very dependent upon the language, very reliant on the language. But just the brief, like, little punctuating moments of, of imagery of just this really intense imagery works so well. Um, and particularly for that play, which is basically, I mean, it's a horror story. You know, it's this. It's got witches and and prophecies and all of these supernatural elements it's got murder it's very dark uh and and i think that this is really the only adaptation of this play that i've seen that has has honestly gotten that at, at the at a visceral level mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah it was a fantastic film so well acted francis mcdermott is a great lady macbeth so good um, Catherine hunter is incredible as the yes. witches yeah Yes, and I loved what uh, what Joel Cohen did with the witches, like the the, the choices that he made about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I was particularly interested that when they get to the double double toil and trouble speech, I was like, you chose because they cut it down, um, but he chose the one like section of the speech that no one ever does for for particular reasons, right? But it's it's not the most famous section of that speech, but he decided to use that section, um, which I found really interesting. Yeah, it, it was, it's just a, it's just a really well-made, intense, enjoyable film. Yeah, it's, I'm so glad you liked it, because I saw it, and well, when I first heard Joel Cohen was doing it, I was like, meh, all right, we've had a million adaptations of Shakespeare, and a million adaptations specifically of Macbeth, and a couple of them have come out just in the last few years. There was one with um, Michael Fassbender. Yeah. There was the Lady Macbeth adaptation with Florence Pugh a couple years ago, and I'm just like, I'm just, I'm tired of just people making the same story over and over again, and basically not doing much different with it. And this was like. Oh, finally. Like, once I finally got to see it, I was just like, oh, finally someone um, isn't just doing this, like, we were kind of talking about this on the Slack, too, but it's it's someone who really, like you mentioned, gets it, gets the horror elements of it, and really brings those about, and doesn't just make this... Literal isn't the, quite the right word, because I think that Cohen's is a more literal translation of what Shakespeare is getting at, but... I think people have this um, tendency to turn it into this, like, big period drama and lose a lot of the the elements of strangeness that really make Macbeth what it is. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, the this I think as you mentioned the sparseness of mm -hmm. the set design and and the use and also just the use of close-ups. Like like I say there's so much reliance on the language and honestly a lot of contemporary Shakespeare adaptations almost work to obscure the language there it's yeah. just like we're gonna do all of these different flashy things you know i i know that a lot of people like it i really hate the baz Luhrmann romeo and julia <laughs> um but i i dislike a lot of contemporary shakespeare adaptations because of that because it feels like the filmmaker or the scriptwriter doesn't trust their actors and doesn't trust the audience to understand what's being said so they have to do all these kind of flashy things that work to actually obscure the fact that this is Shakespeare mm -hmm. and at the end of the day you know Shakespeare is the the brilliance of Shakespeare is the language and and yeah. is his insight into human psychology into human you know and, and in the case of Macbeth to, to the horror of humanity um and and so obscuring that doesn't make any sense but this one actually was just like no we're going to show you we're gonna let these people talk basically mm -hmm. um and and then like i say that uh, using that sparseness of the set design and also um the use of, of basically expressionist techniques yeah um throughout the film to kind of emphasize this it doesn't feel like it's taking place in the real world right um, yeah you know, it's not, they refer to Scotland. At one point they begin talking about Scotland and everything. It's just like, is this really Scotland? Like this isn't anything. <laughs> Although there is one shot I think of, um, of Lady Macbeth standing on the edge of a cliff. And I was just like, see, this is what happens when you live in the Highlands for too long. Like this is, <laughs> this is it. You stand on a cliff and you just go insane. I mean, yeah, that, that <laughs> makes sense. So, The Tragedy of Macbeth is available on Apple TV Plus if you have a subscription to that. Um, and it's one of those things, like, if you don't have a subscription, sign up for a free trial, watch this, binge watch Ted Lasso, and there's a couple other things on there that are good, and then you cancel your subscription or pay for one mm -hmm. month and, you know, watch as much as you can in a month and then go on to other things. It's fine. Yeah. This is worth it. It's only $5 for a month, so, yeah. yeah. And, and I was so happy. It's an hour and 45 minutes. Yes. Yeah. It like, and, and, and that does mean that he cuts out pieces of the play. Definitely. But it's an hour and 45 minutes. I was like, thank you, Jesus. Mm -hmm. I do not want like a two and a half hour Shakespeare adaptation again. Yeah. It would have been too much, too much. Yeah. And what we have here is so good and so rich that you don't even miss the stuff that's, that's not there. So. There's just so much to, to feast mm -hmm. on, and it's it's great. Um, and now, after having seen this, what I personally would really love to see Joel Cohen do next is um, a really good dramatization of the Elmo versus Rocco fight. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I had to call back to last week. <laughs> I'm still like just reeling with the, with all of the Elmo V Rocco stuff. Like. <laughs> That's pretty great. Anyway, um, well, I think that I think the tragedy of Macbeth is not necessarily um, exactly what we're getting at with the the bulk of today's episode, but I think it is an interesting segue because <laughs> what we want to talk about um, is morality in film and. Not not just, I don't know, there's a lot of ways that that can be defined, but 
Um, this is something that we've been talking about for the last, well, feels like we've, you and I have been talking about this forever, but, um, especially recently, this has come up a lot about film and whether filmmakers should be depicting only moral characters, um, and moral stories, you know, and so I think that's a, a lot, there's a lot right there that we can talk about. So Lauren, why don't you just start off by kind of, um, breaking down the topic better than I am doing right now. And then we'll talk about some specific films and, and some other issues with it. Well, the, this one, you know, I feel like this topic comes up every once in a while, but it's particularly come up a, a lot recently with some of the criticism being made about very specific films. And I think we should talk about the specific films that this has come up around because I think that that's important as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the central question being like, should film and, and like such an art generally, right? Um, only depict, you know, basically depict those morality tales, right? So you have a good person and a bad person and the good person ultimately wins over the bad person. Um, and I think that the general answer to this is of course, no. But one of the things that this is kind of broken down into is the fact that, you know, depiction does not equal endorsement. And that is something that is good to to remember when we are talking about complex moral characters. So, for instance, Macbeth, you are depicting, right, a, 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 a guy who commits murder, right? Multiple murders, in fact. Um, and... And, you know, say, well, is Shakespeare endorsing that? It's like, no, of course Shakespeare isn't endorsing Macbeth. Actually, you know, Shakespeare ultimately makes him pay the penalty. So in that sense, Macbeth is a moral story. Um, Macbeth commits these crimes and is ultimately punished for them, although it takes a little while. Uh, But I think that the other side of this, and this is the side that I begin to fall on and that um, I think that people don't talk about as much as they need to, is that depiction does not equal endorsement, but depiction also does not equal critique. Simply depicting Mm -hmm. a villainous character or a character who is, you know, even to the extent of being a rapist or a murderer, that doesn't say that you're necessarily critiquing them. The way that you present them, the way that you, um, that the, what the story is, the story that you're focusing on, how you develop the character, from whose perspective the story is told, all of these different things, that's what brings about the sense of, is this an endorsement? Is this a critique? And you can also have an argument about it. Some people are going to read it as being an endorsement and some people are going to read it as being a critique, but simply depicting certain things so depicting sexism or racism doesn't mean that you're criticizing them it just means that you're depicting them the way that you do it is what's important and that also goes into who the filmmaker is who the writer is the way that the camera looks at people um the way that the story proceeds who does suffer who doesn't suffer who is um you know, who is successful, who isn't successful. So I think it becomes a little more complicated. And this is the part that people leave, that people tend to leave out when they're saying like, well, you can represent really complex moral characters and that doesn't mean that you endorse them. Absolutely. But that also doesn't mean you're critiquing them. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's the little twist that I think is, is where I begin to get annoyed with this conversation. Mm. Um, because so much of the time it's just like, well, no, de- it, there is this attitude of depiction equals critique. 
And it's like, no, that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, for a uh, for an example, and I'm not going to go down the road. Well, maybe I will in a bit. But right <laughs> now, I'm not going to go down the road of, like, the central relationship in licorice pizza. But for a current example of what you're talking about, in that movie, there are two scenes specifically with... Um, I gotta look up the actor's name because I I always get him mixed up with another person and I don't want to say the wrong one. John Michael Higgins, yeah. Uh, I always get him mixed up with someone else and so I didn't want to say the wrong name. But anyway, so there are two scenes with John Michael Higgins and he plays this restaurant owner who is um, looking to open a new Japanese restaurant in L.A. Now, here now in L.A., you can find food from all over the world, all kinds of restaurants, grocery stores, everything. It's totally accepted. But back in the 70s, these types of restaurants were hard to to find and people didn't just like, you know, embrace them. So he goes to this main kid, um, played by Cooper Hoffman. His name is Gary in the movie. Um, He basically, this kid has kind of this side business run by his mom where he helps market businesses and um so john michael higgins goes to him for help marketing this japanese restaurant that he wants to own in la now the reason he wants to own a japanese restaurant is because he has a japanese wife and in the first scene where he's sort of pitching what it is that they're trying to do and what it is that they want um his wife apparently doesn't speak English and they ask a question. So then he is basically trying to translate and he doesn't speak Japanese, it turns out. And so he just puts on this like really, really deeply offensive fake Japanese accent and mimics um, speaking Japanese to his wife and then just kind of answers for her. And then Later on, the restaurant has opened and there's a similar scene, but he's got a new wife because the other wife apparently left, but there's no talk about that. It's just now he has a new wife and um, Gary didn't notice that it wasn't the same woman from before. Like, they look the same to him. And uh, he does that same fake Japanese accent thing again. And so this happens twice. It's... I don't know what Paul Thomas Anderson's actual intention was when he was writing that and when he was filming it, but I can tell you that the audience I was watching it in, a very packed movie house in Westwood, like, everyone around me was laughing. Like, the whole audience, they were just, they thought it was hilarious. They were laughing so hard, and it definitely played for laughs. And I'm sitting there watching this scene going, what, 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 what the fuck is happening? Because there's no critique of, of the racism that is on display and everyone's just laughing about like, oh, how funny, weren't the seventies so quaint and racist. And so that's one of those things where it's depicted. It's not necessarily endorsing that this was okay, but it definitely does not call it out. Well, and, and this has been picked up, I know, by a number of, of Asian critics who mm-hmm. have 
who've talked about this representation and how bothered they are by it. And this includes people who like the movie otherwise, but are just yeah. really troubled by, by this, this representation. But yeah, that's, that's exactly the point that depicting, so being like, oh, this, you know, your intention might be, oh, this stupid white guy who, you know, that, that kind of the stereotype of the white man who gets a, a Japanese or gen generally an Asian wife, right? Quotation mm -hmm. marks. Um, and is actually really racist and all of those kind of stereotypes that surround that, that can be played as like, oh, we were, we're mocking the white guy, right? But you have to show that you're mocking him in some way. It can't just be depicting it. Right. right? It's, it's like, ah, yes, this isn't this funny. It's, it's just like, that's, no, it's not. Exactly. It's, it's not. And, and it is this, like, it's, it is almost hearkening back to you know the very the real racism in the 1970s and in 1970s films where you have those sorts of characters who are being played for laughs um but that does that doesn't make them okay right right and, exactly and yeah so it isn't just about representation as we're saying it's not just about what you show on the screen it's it's a matter of how you show it mm -hmm. and and, well, that's and i would say yeah, and I, I would say on top of that, too, it also doesn't matter what your intention was. What matters is how you show it and how it comes across. Because you could have the best of intentions, and I'm trying right now to think of a good example of that, but, like, you can have the best of intentions. You know, actually, I would say one might be The Last Duel, um, where I, I don't think that Ridley Scott was in any way trying to endorse rape um, or... Uh, misogyny or any of that. Um, and I think that there are sections of The Last Duel that make it pretty clear that he's not. Um, he's making this movie because he wants to, you know, wants to call that out. I don't know why 13th century France is relevant to now, but uh, other than the fact that things haven't changed as much as they should have in the last, you know, 900 years. But, um, but I think that his intention was to show this is wrong, this shouldn't happen, believe women. But what actually comes across then is an actual violent, fetishized in some ways, rape scene. And that is where he runs into a problem with The Last mm -hmm. Duel. Another movie that a lot of people really love, and you know what, fine if they do. Uh, I'm not making moral judgments against anybody who likes that movie. It just didn't work for me because of what I felt really came across on the screen. Well, and, and this is this is very much where the job of criticism comes in. And that's why I'm bothered by the fact that critics are doing this whole, like, you know, well, films don't have to be moral thing. And, and I absolutely agree that films do not have to be moral. But part of the job of the critic is to look at what films actually do. And some people might disagree with you and say that actually The Last Duel is a great example of, you know, critique of this kind of culture. Um, and, and that, that is, that's probably something that they can support, but they can't just say, no, you're wrong and move on. Yeah. Um, one, one of the, one of the ones just as you were talking and I was thinking about was uh, Blade Runner 2049 and which is a film that I absolutely despise, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but one of, one of the things surrounding that, one of the things that really bothered me about that film is its depiction of women as basically ciphers, uh, as bodies for men to kind of imprint upon almost. Um, and I think that this runs throughout the film. Now, 
one of the things that has been argued by people who really like that film, by people, by particularly by men, um, but also by by the filmmaker by uh, Vianov, is that well, the wor world is the world is difficult for women, kind of thing. You know, this is the way that women are treated, and it's like, yeah. So what's so it's kind of so what's your point? So you're going to depict the brutalization of women because that's the way that women are treated, but you're not going to criticize it. You're not going to critique it. You're not going to show that this is bad or good. It just is, right? And I think that definitely as a woman watching films like that, um, my response to that is like, well, I know that the world is tough for women. I am perfectly aware of that. I'm aware of that every day of my life. You're the one who seems to think this is surprising um, and, <laughs> yeah. needs, and needs to be depicted, right? And some of the conversation going on around The Last Duel has kind of the same, uh, the same valence to me, that it sounds very similar to the same kind of conversations that went on around Blade Runner 2049, that, um, you know, well, things haven't changed that much. And, you know, as a woman, I'm sitting there going like, no shit, bro. I know that. I am aware. I am aware because I've been paying attention for the past, you know, 35 years of my life. Mm -hmm. um, you're so like the fact that you have suddenly discovered that things are bad for women and that things haven't changed enough since the 13th century. That does that doesn't tell anything to me, and and it is this this almost male indulgence in the brutalization of women, um, as a kind of like, well, I'm one of the good guys though. Like I think this is bad. It's just like, oh well, good for you, right? You don't think that women should be raped? Awesome. Right. You are perfect man right there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow, groundbreaking. <laughs> good job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and this kind of bring, brings up one of the things that uh, that I was thinking about in terms of this, because there's there's then this conversation that got going around censoring films, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're going to say that films have to be moral, films can only depict moral um, moral events, moral characters, etc. Well, then we're getting into censorship. It's like, well, first of all, we have censorship already. Like censorship exists. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that before actually sorry before we jump into that i just wanted to back up just a little bit because i was thinking just now about another conversation i had a couple years ago just more to your point about like oh good job men you figuring this out and but then what they feel like they need to show on screen in order to help <laughs> make these points um i was just thinking about when i talked to the writer slash executive producer for bombshell which was the, oh, yeah. the Fox News Megyn Kelly movie with Charlize Theron and who else was even in that? Margot Robbie. Was Nicole Kidman in that too, I think? I think I think so. Yeah. I, didn't, I never saw it, honestly. Yeah. Well, don't. Um, but I remember I was talking to the writer and he was explaining, like, I, you know, I asked him, like, you know, where, where this story, why, why he wanted to write this story and, um, so he starts explaining to me that, like, right around the time that this whole Roger Ailes thing had broken, um, he was riding on a train, and his stop was, like, the last stop or the second to last stop or something. He was close to the end of the line. And so by the time they were getting toward his stop, there was just him and two other people on the train. 
on his in his car. And both of them were women. One was this like older lady and the other was young. And they were getting off at the same stop. And so she gets off the train and she just books it to her car. And he's thinking like, well, what is she afraid of me? I wouldn't do anything. And then he realized, like, then he's thinking about the Roger Ailes thing. And all of a sudden it clicks for him that like women don't know that men are safe. And I'm just like, wow, wow. Striking revelation for you, dude. Like, good job. It does. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, it does. I, I feel like we keep on talking about this because it keeps on coming up where it's yeah. like men suddenly discover right. that, that like, like, and I, I've had chats, you know, with perfectly nice, good, decent men that I, I consider to be very good allies. And it's just like, do you know what we go through? Do you know how afraid women are so much of the time? And it's just, and it is that kind of like, well, I wouldn't do anything. It's just like, yeah, I don't fucking know that. If you're just some random dude on the street, I don't know what you're going to do or not do. Exactly. So then specifically in this movie, there's a scene where Margot Robbie, she's this young, like, new hire, and she gets called into Roger Ailes' office. And so she's all nervous to go in and stuff. And um, there's a scene where basically he's asking her to hike up her skirt. He wants to to see, you know, what, you know. The goods, basically. And um, so she's, like, pulling it just a little bit and a little bit. And then it ends up to the point where she's showing her underwear. And this is, like, close-up shot, like, full camera, you know. And that was another thing that we talked about in our conversation. She's like, I just really felt like men need to understand. They need to, like, be in the woman's shoes. They need to understand what that feels like for women. And I'm thinking, like, okay, if you need to actually see this, with your eyeballs to understand what women go through, you're still not going to get the problem <laughs> anyway. Yeah. But those are just the little things that like, this is why we need more stories by women because look at the way the movie, the assistant um, was received by mostly by film Twitter. Cause it was a pretty quiet, small movie two years ago, a uh, very independent film, mm-hmm. but that one directed by a woman never shows anything happen and it's not even about a woman who's being harassed it's about the assistant who knows that it's happening and that movie is intense and you can feel so much from i think it's julia garner um from her performance you can feel so much about the intensity and everything of what she's experiencing and what she knows other people are experiencing without ever having to show it and men love that movie too so it's like this can be done You just, you need the female perspective, like, with that, you know, imagination, I guess, basically, is what I'm trying to say, so. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, at the the end of the day, a lot of the time, it becomes about fetishization. Yes, and and that is the real problem. And we've talked about the male gaze before, and and even though I think that it's, it's an overused term... Um, the male gaze definitely exists and you can see that in these films so it's it's almost as though they don't know that you can depict rape or sexual harassment as something that isn't particularly sexual right that isn't about titillation it's about fear and and it doesn't have to always be shown you don't have to show the rape you don't have to show the harassment you just have to show the experience of it and and that's what i think a lot of um a lot of male directors a lot of male writers do not understand uh and we can spin that out also to ridley to talk scott about... ben affleck 
And we can spit that out also to talk about race, to talk about um, gender generally, to talk about uh, um, sexuality, you know, all of those different things that at a certain point you ha it has to be, it has to become about who is doing the depicting, yeah. not just what is being depicted. Um, a good example of this that, that I was just thinking about the other day because I was watching the, the uh, folk horror documentary on Shudder was Witchfinder General. And, and this is true for a lot of horror films. Horror films generally do not endorse the perspective of the murderer, right? It's not a horror, the horror film is not, um, yay, murdering is fun, <laughs> generally. <laughs> Sometimes. Generally. Sometimes it is, but generally the, the conclusion very often is not that the killer is awesome and we love him, but you know, the killer gets caught in the end. But what is being represented um, the pleasure of a lot of horror films, and this is true about, I think, the film Witchfinder General, is the, uh, the, the brutalization of, of people, right? And in the case of Witchfinder General, it's the brutalization of women. So this is a film, and this is one of the things that I felt the documentary didn't address as much as it needed to, is that it's a very misogynist film. Even though this is a film that ultimately uh, comes down on, you know, witch hunting is bad uh, and, kill, and, bur and killing and burning women at the stake is bad, it still indulges in the violence and violation of women to such a degree that it, it, feels like, it feels like it's moral only in the sense that it comes to the conclusion that, you know, okay, we're going to eliminate the bad guy, basically, but we're secretly going to enjoy all of the things that he does. And that's what the film depicts. Uh, so this, this issue of who is doing the representing, this is a film that is written by a man, directed by a man. Uh, who is doing the representing is very, very important. So it's, it isn't just about uh, what is being represented, but the perspective that is being taken on what is being represented. This actually comes back to, to what I, I was initially leading into um, uh, earlier, and w which is that issue of uh, um, this this rallying cry that you know movies need not be normal well it's moral so what is morality morality is determined by the society that surrounds it but morality in an individual film is determined by the filmmaker and is determined by it's determined by the filmmaker the writer and then it is ultimately determined by the viewer because so my response to Witchfinder General is um, that this is really misogynist that this is really it's very troubling right at the very least. Um, that might not be someone else's experience of it. So what I consider to be the immorality at some level of Witchfinder General because of its misogyny, someone else might not look at it that way at all. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it is about um, who is doing the representation and, and also what is being allowed to be represented. So I mentioned the other day that the production code really kind of coalesced around this this concept of a total social morality morality clause almost um that this is the way that human beings are supposed to behave so we have to punish the bad guys at the end if someone commits a murder doesn't matter if it's a justified murder or anything like that no they have to be punished at the end punishment of adultery punishment for interracial relationships um, what is allowed to be depicted and what isn't and there's this whole idea that as soon as the the production code kind of falls apart right at the end of the 1960s and really it was it was fragmenting in a, in a pretty major way throughout the 50s and 60s um 
that as soon as that happens, you know, there's this wonderful utopian universe of, of progressive films being made because there's no more censorship, right? Well, first of all, there is censorship. Um, but second of all, this is where it comes to who is actually making the movies. And the movies being made in the post-production code era are being made by white men. They're being made by um, straight white men. They're being made by cisgendered straight white men. And you're going into a very conservative period, at least in terms of American filmmaking, um, so that you show representations of extreme violence and extreme sexuality, use of pornographic um, uh, techniques, techniques pulled out of pornography, literally. Uh, and, and ultimately, who is making those films is way more important than whether or not those films should be considered moral or immoral. Do you have any examples? Let's try. Well, Wishfinder General was one of the ones that that I was thinking of. But um, well, you know, a good example actually, kind of on the other side of what I'm talking about is Taxi Driver. Mm, mm -hmm. um, so Taxi Driver is a very violent film. Um, it is. Uh, it it does have. It does definitely represent kind of weird off-kilter sexuality um but the the question is you know does this film endorse the perspective of travis bickle no it doesn't it is representing a very immoral character uh and a very complex immoral character but ultimately it doesn't come down to saying like what you know travis bickle is the is the pinnacle of um of what we want he's the pinnacle of, of ethical representation it's basically saying that no, this this man is a psychopath, right? And uh, and so being, but it's still being told from the perspective of a white man in the 1970s, um, and particularly being told from Bickle's perspective. Now, I think that Scorsese does a very good job at twisting um, audience sympathy and an understanding of what. Uh, what you know the moral compass is because I, actually when you look at it what Bickle thinks he's doing in saving Iris from her pimp is a good thing right and also you sit there and go like okay well this film is not endorsing child's uh, child prostitution right um, but because we follow Bickle for so long and we know what a psychopath he is by the end of the film the ultimate, you know, him acting as this savior doesn't ring true. It doesn't feel real. And the film intends that. That being said, the film has also been interpreted as being a, an endorsement of the vigilante. And, and I think that that's an incorrect interpretation because you can't actually make that work out based upon the events of the movie, based upon a proper reading of the film. Um, but that's one where you have a lot of complex ethical moral representation no one's really a good guy in that movie mm -hmm. uh but the perspective that is being taken is more important to the film than what is actually being represented on the screen and scorsese makes it pretty clear by not having him stand on top of a police car and get applauded and cheered by lots of raving fans all around him yeah well, I, I think that the other side of that is something like, you know, maybe the Dirty Harry movies, mm -hmm. um, which are which are a little bit later, but um, I think, but are uh, very much this started like early 70s, I think, are, are very much an endorsement of, you know, the kind of vigilante cop who is who goes outside of the bounds of the law in order to enforce justice. Yeah. 
and we and then that kind of became its own subgenre. So we see yeah. even TV shows and stuff where, like, I love in the I love the movie So I Married an Axe Murderer. Have you have you ever? Please tell me you've I, seen that. I have seen that movie. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, I love the friend Tony, and he's this cop in San Francisco, and he became a cop because he wanted to do all the fun like cop movie stuff, and he realized like no, it's not like that. It's just a bunch of paperwork and stuff. So he's getting his captain to like you know, haul him into the office and scream at him and, and like, all that stuff because he wants to do what he saw in the movies. <laughs> and, uh, it's all based on these, like, Dirty Harry and, um, Die Hard and stuff like that. Anyway, just a funny side note. Yeah, but, but, so, the representation of police officers in, in, you know, 1970s and 1980s cinema is, uh, is, is very much about, you know, whose perspective is being taken. And I, you know, as we've said before, when the people who are the dominant culture, which is primarily white, primarily male, um, are the ones that are being represented, then those are the perspectives that you're getting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know what? And the same thing goes for interpretation. The same, yeah. because if interpretation is everything, if it's about, you know, how do I interpret the last duel or the witch or Witchfinder general or um malignant or you know any any film right um when the dominant interpretation is still the privilege of straight white cisgendered male then the question of is this movie problematic does it have problematic representation almost becomes moot because it's like well i can't really trust you to understand any of these things i can't trust you to understand anything outside of the main perspective of the dominant culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and this isn't to say that that cisgendered white men shouldn't write reviews. We never say that. I think some specific ones shouldn't. But, uh, you know, in general, like, it's not about limiting them and taking away opportunities from them. It's about opening the conversation, expanding, and having more voices talk about all these things and, and interpreting them and critiquing them and that's where you get these rich conversations, you know, like if I want to know people's thoughts about passing, for example, if I want to know what people thought about the movie passing, which I loved, I thought it was beautiful, but I don't have a perspective that's in that particular world or centered in that story. I've never read the the novel. And so I'm going to go to black women critics and read what they have to say about it before I go to anybody else's perspective because I don't necessarily care what a white dude thinks about the movie passing. Whether he likes it or not, I don't care what he thinks. Well, and and this is one of the things that was bothering me about the kind of the the reinvigoration of this conversation at this point because a lot of it seems to be centered around a few specific films and we've mentioned several of them already. Mm-hmm. Um and and the other thing is that I being film Twitter's Cassandra, as I have nominated <laughs> myself, um, I, I see, I kind of see the writing on the wall here uh, that I think that this is going to wind up sweeping up actual critique yeah. of films and essentially saying that anytime you say, I think that this is problematic and here's why, it's going to be like, well, don't you know that film can represent complex morality? It's like, okay, but that's so problematic. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And so I really, I really do think that legitimate film discussions um, are going to get swept up in this like whole scale dismissal of critique of films or elements of films that are racist or sexist. And this, this is going to mean the falling apart of feminist film criticism, of, um, of uh, race, racial film criticism, of anything that is kind of addressing the non-dominant culture. And so that's something that bothers me a great deal in some of these conversations, that it, it just becomes this like, um, well, you know, films are allowed to, to represent complex morality. It's, it's like, yeah, but that's not what I'm saying. Right. Well, one of the other problems that we're seeing, and I, I mean, this is what you're going to get when you have people basically boiling down a review into 240 characters, not even words, characters. And so, so much of the nuance and the complexity of these issues gets lost um, or ignored or, um, you know, just wrapped up in other things. And so another problem that we're seeing, not just like whether films or filmmakers are depicting stories that are, you know, just to what we were talking about, like are really addressing the issues that they're showing. But the other thing that we're seeing is this sort of tendency that that people are starting to have now where there's this and probably not just now it's probably been happening for a long time but um this tendency to dismiss films that have a problematic element to it and for example like i've talked about licorice pizza i wrote about licorice pizza i don't like the racism in it i actually hate the racism in it that's not why i don't like the movie I don't like the central relationship and the weird age difference, not because it's 10 years and she's older, but because he's an actual child. Um, But that's also not the only reason I don't like that movie. I didn't like it because I just, I thought it was boring. I didn't like it. And I can get into more specifics of why. But because I brought up the racism and the age problem, that becomes... The assumption that like, oh, I don't like this movie because of these two things. And those are part of it, but that's not the whole story. And so then it's this assumption that I'm dismissing the movie because of these two particular elements of it, which is not the case. And we see so many times where like someone will, like I've seen people refuse to watch a movie because a dog dies off camera. (laughs) Like, (laughs) which, yeah, I don't like it when the dog dies either. I'm so grateful for the website doesthedogdie.com. But, uh, but, you know, like, people will reject an entire film because of one element of it that may or may not have to do with, like, a larger part of the plot, but that's the other, the other side of it. Like, they expect films to be completely in line, 100% with their moral, um, their moral lines. Yeah, and, and I, I think that part of the role of the critic in all of this is to actually, to actually critique. Right mm-hmm. to say to say that you know this this is an issue this is good this is bad I like this I don't like that um, this is how you know this kind of operates I mean one of the things that always surprises me about this is that I watch all kinds of films that have all sorts of elements that I don't like I have talked about my enjoyment of giallo films yeah those those films have all kinds of problems that I recognize. Right. Mm-hmm. That I'm not sitting there going like, no, this is perfectly moral in every possible way. It's like, no, I there, there's lots of stuff that I don't like about them, but there are other things that I do. And so I appreciate the things that I like. And I kind of 
you know, critique or sometimes simply, you know, just almost ignore the parts that I don't, right? Because that's part of my enjoyment of the film. That's not saying that I endorse them as, you know, pinnacles of moral cinema or anything like that. But that's the way we need to be able to watch films. Most film, almost every film you can name is problematic in some way. Exactly. Um, Partially because almost every film you can name has been produced in an extremely patriarchal culture, right? Yeah. A problematic culture, a racist culture, a colonialist culture, right? And so a lot of films have those elements in them, and we almost can't escape from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We definitely have to critique them. We definitely have to deal with those things. But we also should not let that equal a, a moral judgment of the film itself exactly and so it's there there are a lot of different places that this has to go to so i mean i grew up in the 1980s i grew up on a steady diet of problematic movies and some of which i still love and are still some of my favorites i have watched the breakfast club a million times there are so many problems with that movie i still love it and i'm not gonna apologize for it you know (laughs) like there are just lots of those and that's okay Exactly. Yeah, and we and we've talked about problematic films, and yeah. and uh, and you know, I've I've said it's just like, bro, my favorite director is Hitchcock. I'm gonna have a conversation about this, and uh, and I, I always find it very funny that that whenever I like have a feminist critique or like say something about a film on uh, on Twitter, someone's always like, oh, but you like Polanski. Yeah, it's just like you like Hitchcock, you like Polanski. It's just like, bro, let me tell you something about the things that I've said and written about these directors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yes, I absolutely do enjoy Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. I am not going to defend certain things that Alfred Hitchcock did in his personal life, nor am I going to defend some of the things that he depicted on screen. But that's part of the enjoyment is actually talking about those things, and and it's not destroying my love for those films necessarily. Um, but it is definitely dealing with the fact that there's a lot of problematic shit. Yeah. And that's something that we're, we're going to have to address and that we're going to have to deal with. And that you, you have to, you have to other, otherwise, otherwise, yeah, there is no, um, there's nothing that you're going to be able to enjoy. Yeah, exactly. But I think to bring it back around and as we, as we kind of close out this conversation, which I think has been really good. Um, but I think what it really comes down to is, when we're looking at a film and this is whether you are a critic and are actually writing long form critiques of a film, whether you're part of film Twitter and you're just tweeting about your thoughts or whether you're a casual viewer who just likes to watch movies for, for every person, the experience of watching any film is going to be different. And, and like you, like you said earlier, the morality of a film is dependent on the filmmaker and the text of the film, but also on the individual viewer. Like we can individually decide what is acceptable to us and what is not. And, and and on the culture, I was just gonna say, and on the culture, the culture that is, is experiencing it. So something that is being, something that was made in 1920 has a very different valence to us now Mm -hmm. than it did in 1920. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And part of that, when we watch those things, we need to keep that perspective, but that also doesn't mean that, oh, well, it was a product of its time. We have to just accept it for what it is because of when it came. I mean, like Betty White was a product of her time too. And she was so anti-racist. Like it's amazing, you know? Um, but anyway, I just, I think that for anybody, when you sit down to watch film, when you sit down to watch television, it's, 
it's good practice and it's good to to remind yourself that just you don't have to just accept what's on screen and like there's so many different filters i guess and so many different ways that we can watch it and so if you're really wanting to think about what's what you're seeing um really look at not just what is you know the actual text like what i'm seeing on the screen what words i'm hearing being spoken but really thinking about the intention behind that scene how how it comes across in the reaction of the people around you for example like i was mentioning with licorice pizza where everyone around me was laughing at certain parts that i did not find funny at all and so i think that when we consider all of those things it can really help us um have a better understanding of what a film is trying to do versus what it is doing and then that ultimately can help us understand our own reactions to those things as well yes i i absolutely agree well do you have any final thoughts uh i think my final thoughts i'm sitting here actually looking at the cover of the malignant blu-ray and and i'm just like well you know what i do not endorse like you know violent murder but i do enjoy this movie so (laughs) perfect example I'm going to go watch Scream today because I finally (laughs) get to because I don't have COVID. And um, I'm going to enjoy watching a bunch of teenagers get killed. Doesn't mean I want teenagers to get killed. It's just, you know, I enjoy those movies and it's okay. Oh, one of the other things I did want to say is that it's also within the right. This is something that bothered me specifically about this conversation um, on on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. Uh-huh. People have the right to choose not to watch a movie because of its subject matter. Yes. Um, I I was really bothered that like all of this, including got professional paid film critics. Yes, I, I I was a little bit bothered that like there was this whole thing about like oh it's the TikTok teenagers don't want to watch licorice pizza. It's just like first of all. They are perfectly within their rights to say, I do not want to see this movie because of X. Like, 100%. You know what? I don't want to see Licorice Pizza because I don't like Paul Thomas Anderson. Ooh. <laughs> That's okay. It's okay for me to... That is not a moral judgment on you for going to watch it. It's That's also not- okay to not even have a reason. Yeah. There's some like, movies I, I just don't feel like watching. <laughs> I would prefer not to see this movie. How dare you judge me? It's like no, I I don't I don't want to see the movie. Yeah, like, and it's not a moral failing because someone just doesn't want to watch something. I didn't. I don't want to see the last duel. Why? Because I don't want to watch a movie about rape. Like that's just not something I want to do. It's fine if you want to watch that, but I don't want to. I do find it a little weird how hard people are standing for these movies, though. Yeah. Well, and I think that's. I think. I think the real reason that that becomes such a thing is that people, you know, we've talked about this a lot too, where people tie their identities into certain movies or filmmakers or whatever. And I think that's part of it. But I also think when there's a backlash on a film that someone likes, they start to feel personally attacked. Like I had a conversation with someone specifically about the last duel a couple months ago, who was just like, well, but this movie is good. And I'm like, to you, that movie is good. To me, it's not. And I don't have a judgment against you because you liked it. It's fine if you liked it. I didn't. And and people just, I think, feel very judged if they have a certain opinion. Like, there's one movie. I'm not going to name it because I don't want to deal with 
the shame, but there's one movie I like that is intensely problematic, and a lot of people have a lot of opinions about it. It's one that's come out in the last few years. I watch it every now and then because I just enjoy the movie. It's got pretty people in it. It's got some pretty sets. I think it's kind of fun. It's problematic as hell. I'm not going to talk about it because I know people have opinions and I just don't want to deal with it. You have to tell me when we, when we stop <laughs> Okay, recording. I'll tell you. you are You're going to judge me and it's fine. I, I don't care. I already have. I already have. So, sorry, right, Karen. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah. Um... But that's, I think that's the real problem, too. Or a, one of the problems is that um, people get so wrapped up in feeling judged for liking or not liking a film that they dig their heels in deeper and then it becomes, like, this part of their, like, they go on the attack. Like, they can't just accept that people have different opinions, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and and it then feeds into that sense of like everything. Either it's it's kind of like a it's apocalypse or nirvana kind of thing. It's it's either one or the other. It's either good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is some you know objective way of determining that at some level, so that whenever you see a critique of a film that maybe you like, um, and you know you can agree or disagree with the critique, but you immediately respond to it being like, how dare you? assault me with with you know how dare you accuse me of being sexist or or being racist or something like this like well i'm not accusing you of being sexist or racist unless the reason why you like this film is because it's racist exactly (laughs) then there's a problem if what you are enjoying is racism then yes i would say that you're racist but if what you're enjoying is something else then no um and and part of being able to enjoy films is is being able to understand them from a critical perspective and to understand that they're not perfect Mm -hmm. and that they're they're like you're saying there are things they're problematic films that we absolutely love but we have to know that they're problematic we can't decide that they're magically not because we like them exactly exactly um, are there any, like, we, as we end every episode, we want people to watch more movies. Are there any specific ones that you would recommend this week? Uh, I just oh kind of tossed that on you because I don't you have any have either. To, <laughs> you would have to ask me that. God damn it, Karen. Sorry. <laughs> definitely, I mean, definitely Tragedy of Macbeth. I, yeah. I do think that that's, that's one that's very worth seeing. Um... Uh, I actually recently saw a movie that that was that I've been wanting to see. It's on the Criterion Channel. It's called Crime Wave, and it is a really interesting. You know, in terms of this morality, right? It's about um, a a sort of paroled criminal who has gotten married and kind of settled down, and he winds up uh, getting involved with a couple of men who he used to be in prison with. And it's basically how he sort of gets railroaded both by them and by the the cops into becoming a criminal again um and it's a very intense film it's very well made it's directed by uh andre de toth who who did a lot of kind of very sparse intense film noirs and um and some kind of noirish westerns and it it's it's surprisingly topical again it's this issue of you know once a criminal always a criminal kind of attitude that that not just the criminals take but the cops take um and so that's that's on Criterion Channel right now. It's just an interesting film. It's very short. It's like an hour and fifteen minutes. Um, and I would I would encourage people to check it out because it uh, it does a lot of things that I didn't expect from a film from like the mid nineteen fifties. 
Nice. Um, if people are comfortable going to the theater, and no judgment if you're not, um, I really recommend Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. I want to see it. I know, I want you to see it so bad. Um, but man, talk about a morally complex movie. <laughs> it's, uh, and I mean, it definitely shares the story with the original 1947 film with Tyrone Power. Uh, they're both adapted from the same book. It delves more into the complexity of, of Stanton. Um, it really gets more into why he is the way that he is, why he makes the choices that he makes, the fallout of some of the choices that he makes. It's grittier. It's, it's more violent. Um, cause it's, you know, made in 2021 and not 1946, but, um, but yeah, just such a great full circle story um, about a man who makes really bad choices in life. And for a while, those choices work really well for him. And um, but even when he starts to have to pay the price for some of those choices, um, there's still it's it's not just a clean cut um, resolution, I guess so. And it's beautiful. No Such Christ. a beautiful, beautiful movie. So, yeah. I, I love I'm it. Just... I cannot wait for you to see it. <laughs> I, must... I am, like, begging, begging them to just release. I am perfect. I am willing to pay the 20 bucks for, like, you know, in early release or whatever. I am absolutely willing to do that because I really want to see this movie, but I'm not going to movie theaters. <laughs> <laughs> it's the movie where I officially had to admit, okay, I, I, I am in love with Kate Blanchett. <laughs> See, this is the problem. So I love the original. I've, we've talked about the original uh, film before. Somehow I managed to watch that film more last year than on any other movie. And I don't know how that happened. I watched it like four times um, under different circumstances. Love it. I am so excited to see Kate Blanchett in that role. That's it's, specifically that role, too. It's so weird because it's like it was written for her, even though the book was written 70 years ago. I don't know how it worked out, but it did. She she is immortal. That's the only explanation. <laughs> she looked at us just like, ah, oh, yes, the character that was inspired by me. Great. Yep. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, yeah. I think that's going to wrap things up then for this week. Um, as always, watch more movies. And um, you're going to be able to do that with us one of these days because we are going to do another watch party. I don't know when, uh, but we are. Um, so look for more information about that. Um, but, uh, we want to thank our patrons who help make this show and our website possible. Um, that, uh, that list includes Adriana, Ali, Connor, Heather, James, Kathleen, Carriata, Mason, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanita, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you all so much for your support. Uh, to join their number, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame and sign up as a patron. We have three different levels. You get different stuff, uh, including early access to our episodes, uh, bonus episodes, which we do have one coming this month on Matrix Resurrections. Uh, look for that very, very soon. Um, and like we've mentioned, we're working on some redesign stuff. So once we get that done, there's going to be some stuff coming in the mail to our patrons as well. Um, some thank you gifts and fun stuff like that. Um, we do have a Zazzle store. Nothing's changed on that either, but if you haven't been there, zazzle.com slash citizen dame. 
And if you just want to throw a couple dollars our way, um, co-fi.com slash citizen dame. And all of the, the money that comes in goes to support, you know, things like um, hosting and stuff like that for the website um, and, you know, basic expenses. So we appreciate everybody who helps us out. Um, if you'd like to go to our website and see our reviews for stuff, uh, lots of things come in there. Um, we are starting up the Citizen Dame 5 again. Uh, so go to citizendamepod.com for that. If you want to contact us, we're at citizendamepod at gmail.com. And if you want to find us on social media, we're at Twitter and Instagram at citizendamepod and letterboxed at citizendame. You can also find us individually. Lauren, where are you? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. And I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. Thank you so much for joining us once again, and have a great day. Bye. Meet Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth. Her husband is about to kill the king. The guilt from this crime will lead to her insanity and eventual death. She could have avoided this fate if she had a sassy gay friend. What hath quenched them hath given me fire. Hark, peace. It was the owl that shrieked. No, it was the gay. And guess what he shrieked? What, what, what are you doing? Macbeth is going to be king. He heard it from the three witches this morning. Okay, first of all, stop getting your political news from crazy old women who live in the bushes. Second of all, maybe he'll die of natural causes. Slow down, Lady Macbeth. Slow down. Well, how long am I supposed to wait? Um, longer than 12 hours. But I need to be queen! Of Scotland? Really?